the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Portions of the following program may be pre-recorded. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. This is Tracy Weaver. Welcome to Prayer Life. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letters to the various churches, he wasn't writing to one local congregation. He was writing to the church of the city, to the saints in Philippi, to the believers in Ephesus, to the church in Rome. He was writing to the collective body of Christ within that city. And so we want to be praying for the unity and the vitality of the church in our city. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would move powerfully in the collective body of Christ in our city. Lord, that you would sow the seeds of unity and oneness. Father God, that you would open the eyes and the hearts of pastoral leadership, that they wouldn't be simply focused on their ministry or their little area of the city, but Lord, that they would embrace the truth of your word, that they would see the importance of the unity of the body in the city in order to have a spiritual transforming impact in our community. Lord God, we ask for the unity of the body in our city. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Tracy Weaver encouraging you to pray for the unity of the church in your city. Join me again tomorrow for Prayer Life.
The message today is entitled, God's Name, God's Kingdom, God's Will. Let's pray. Lord, would you open for us an understanding and a path that we could walk to win all of heaven's heart. Lord, thank you. Bless us as we open the word today, as we search your word. Thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. I received a phone call yesterday that changed the direction of the message that I'm going to share with you. It was from a young man who should be in service today. He's not here. Instead, he's in Las Vegas. And I said to him, what are you doing in Las Vegas? He said, well, two buddies asked me if I'd come out with him and we'd just spend a weekend in Las Vegas. I didn't say anything. And then he said, and pastor, I didn't call you before I left because I knew if I called you before I left, you would tell me not to come. So I figured I'd call you after I got here. I said, do you remember last Sunday when I said to you on mall that you would be severely tested this week in the area of morality? And you said to me, as you were leaving the church last Sunday, Pastor, is God going to bring me my wife? I said, no, God is not going to bring you a wife. He is going to let the devil test you. And based on your decision, he'll decide what he will and won't do for you. I said, you just postponed by months and maybe years what God wants to do for you. And then he began his famous wine. And the wine goes something like this. It's too hard, Pastor, following Jesus. If I follow Jesus, I have to give up everything. If I follow Jesus, Pastor, you know nobody can be righteous before God. And all I could say to him is, Anmal, stop whining. It's not becoming a man. Grow up. Get real about God. Now, I thought a lot about this conversation with him. I warned him again. I said, my advice to you is stay in the hotel room until it's time to leave. Lest God's judgment fall on you, you have chosen to go to the devil's playground. No one forced you. You chose. And you used the Lord's money because he gave you the job. And so you've violated the word of the Lord to you. Then I recalled a conversation with a brother by the name of James that some of you may have heard on the radio on Thursday. James called. He said, Pastor, I am Mr. Talkative. My Christian life is in shambles. 
I talk a good talk, but then I go back to the alcohol. I go back to the other sins of my life. And interwoven into his conversation, likewise, was this posturing that says, God is too hard. How can I walk righteous before God? And his confession was that he felt almost no prompting in his heart to walk clean with God. I prayed with him and then continued struggling in the prayer closet and saying, how do we get clean with God and stay clean? What's the issue here? I had a conversation yesterday with another person who gave me all the theological logic and reasoning laid out in detail for how he could walk righteous before God, but admitted that a week ago he was deep in his sin, the same familiar sin that he's gone back to many times. As I prayed about this person later, I was saying, Jesus, I'm missing something here. What are the steps necessary for a person to walk clean consistently before God? Now, it's obvious in Anmal's situation that he expects certain things from God. And one of the last things he said before he hung up with me was, Pastor, aren't I doing better than I've been doing? Don't I deserve a break? I've been attending church. I've been giving tithes and offerings. I haven't been going out with girls. And he went through a whole list of things that he'd been doing. And he said, isn't God happier with me now? Because I've been walking clean before God, but every man needs a break. And this is my Las Vegas break. And I'll come back and I'll walk clean again with God. And I added, until the next time. And he laughed and he said, Pastor, God's just too hard for me. So where do we go with this? Now, it's absolutely clear to me that a man cannot be saved by trying to make God happy. That's not the way of salvation. That's legalism 101. I have my list. If I fulfill these things, then God should be happy with me. That's trying to serve God in the flesh and not in the spirit. So how do we begin to move in the spirit of God and walk in righteousness so that we don't turn back to the wicked things of the past that will destroy us and take us to hell? What are the necessary steps? And that forced me to come back to Jesus and to the Beatitudes. Let's talk about the Beatitudes for a moment. Jesus sits down on the mountain, and in that culture, when you had something very important to say, you sat down. In this culture, you stand up. Jesus sat down and he began to teach his disciples, it says. He begins, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, let's let's talk about this spirit versus flesh, because we can only be saved walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. You can do all kinds of wonderful things in your flesh. You can go to self-improvement classes. You can take seminars and workshops. You can improve your skill set. You can do all kinds of things. You can go to the club and work out and build your body up. You can go to college and become better educated. You can all kinds of things you can do, but it's all in the flesh. And you cannot be saved in your flesh. You must be saved in the spirit. Now, what do I mean in the spirit? This body that I'm in will be in the grave and will turn back to dust. But my spirit will not turn back to dust. What is my spirit? It is the essential essence of the decision-making process in my soul. Let's define terms. Soul means simply your whole personality. It is who you are personality-wise, shy, bold, honest, dishonest. It's who you are. It's the soul that has to be transformed by the blood of Jesus and given a character. And the character... Our soul is what we take to heaven. But there is a spirit within our soul. And that spirit makes the fundamental decisions about who we are and what we are, where we go, and what we do. That spirit connects with God in our conscience. As the Holy Spirit comes and quickens our conscience and gives us direction, if we choose to obey that prompting of the Holy Spirit in our conscience, the character is shaped. If we choose to give way to the prompting of the spirit of darkness, our character is shaped. Remember, Satan is also in the spirit realm, not the physical realm. And so he can commune with our spirit. He can give us dreams. He can plant thoughts in our minds. He has incredible power and ability. He comes in the spirit realm, even as the Holy Spirit comes. It's like a radio. You can change the station. So our spirit tunes in with either the spirit of darkness or the spirit of light. And as we tune in, we make decisions in our spirit about who we're going to be, where we're going to go, what we're going to think. The devil cannot make us think anything. We choose our thoughts. Remember, all sin is a choice. It is a voluntary choice that we make. My dear brother Anmal again said, Pastor, I've just fallen into sin once more. And I can repent, can't I? And God will forgive me. I said, you did not fall into sin. You jumped off the bridge into sin. You knew very well you were jumping into sin. That's why you didn't call me before you left. You already gave that clue away. He said, all right, Pastor, I did jump in. So I guess I'd better have fun before I come back and walk holy. Okay, so 
He's honest. That's why he's helpful to talk about. Now, Jesus opens and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning the place where all of us start in dealing with sin is recognizing that we do not have the power in our flesh. We do not have the strength to turn away from our sin. The sin will come and sweep us away time after time after time. And Jesus is saying that when a man or woman finally begins to recognize their utter helplessness in the spirit realm to deal with the sin of their heart, this is the beginning place for righteousness. So today, if you're in a position where you know there is sin in your heart, you have to give up all illusion that you can clean yourself up. You cannot do it. The work of cleansing is the work that Jesus does for us now. That's why he's in the holy tabernacle in the heavenly place. He is there to bring to bear his blood on our lives to wash and cleanse us from sin. So there is a helplessness that must be admitted to. Everything in us in the flesh says, do not admit that you're helpless in anything. You have to be strong and capable, and you have to do what you're going to do. And that's why the saying that was very popular that Robert Schuller brought to America, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's flesh. And flesh rules the day in most churches. So they hold seminars and workshops on how to be a better Christian because it doesn't require dying to be a better Christian in that context. It simply requires harder work, more concentration, more seriousness. Jesus says that the life in the Spirit begins when you recognize you have no power. If you think you have power, Jesus will be cast aside and you will not walk in righteousness before God. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That word comforted, literally in the Greek, it means to be brought close. So do you want God to come close to you? The first step, if you want God to come close to you, is to recognize you're out of options. You can't do it on your own. That if God doesn't step in and save you, you are going to die. You don't have the ability to win your wife or husband to Jesus. You don't have the ability to change the circumstances you're in. You don't have the ability or the power to bring to pass what you want to have happen in your life. And until you come to that place where you recognize you don't have the power, God will not begin to act for you. The second step is equally vital. Blessed are those who mourn, who weep, soul agony. Now, let me try to talk about this, please. A person commits sin against God, either in the cursing of God or the cursing of another person. Anger rises up. Bitterness flows out of their heart. Sexual impurity rises up in their heart. 
They may even give way to it. And afterward, there's a touch of sorrow in your heart. And you say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. How many times I've heard that? Time after time on the radio, people will call me and they'll say, Pastor, I keep saying I'm not going to go back to it. But the fact is, I'm not going to go back to it until the next time. I'm going to go back to it again. I know I'm going to go back to it again. So why even try? Look, this is who I am, and either God accepts me the way I am, or there's nothing I can do. Yes, there is something you can do. You can go to the very bottom of what that issue is in your heart and weep over your total inability to do anything about it and weep before God for the wickedness of your heart so that you deal to the very bottom of what that issue is. Almost everyone that I talk with and I challenge on these issues wants to position themselves in the same place. They know they have sinned against God. They have said, I'm sorry. And then they escape into their theology and they say, I know Jesus has forgiven me. I'm back on track. I'm not going to go back there again till the next time. And it's a cycle over and over, round and round the mountain. And I say to people, aren't you tired yet of going around this mountain? How many more times do you have to go around it? Until there is a willingness to humble our hearts before God and go to the very bottom of what that sin represents for us. And for some of us, that sin represents independence, the right to make my own choices. For some of us, that sin represents individuality. I'm my own person. For some, that sin represents, look, I'm somebody to this person, and I have to take care of them. Right. You're taking care of your own ego and protecting yourself from having to be crucified with Christ. So there's no dying. For some of you, the issue is you would rather just be a victim. Thank you very much. It's more fun to complain and groan and moan and blame everybody else and make everybody else miserable so you can be a little bit happy. I have never understood that one, but I see it a lot. Maybe if I'm enough of a victim, somebody will take some pity on me and show me a little bit of attention. What a miserable way to live. All of these things are merely avenues that we can adopt in our struggle so that we will not have to go to the bottom of our sin and identify what's going on and weep before God for our total wicked heart. And as long as we continue in that pattern of not dealing honestly with our sin, it will have authority over us and we will go back to it time after time after time because we will not dig to the bottom and gain the authority in Jesus to have that thing cast out. I said to James on Thursday, you love your sin, don't you? And he was a little bit taken back. And then he said, yes, pastor, that is the bottom line issue. I love my sin. All reoccurring sin, all Heidi Caves, exist in our lives because we love our wickedness. And until you're willing to face that reality, 
its power cannot be broken from your life. As was said earlier, and this is so very, very common, I have my expectations. My expectations are not met. I'm mad. Because somehow, things don't go the way I want them to go. Look at one of these little twins. They don't get their bottle when they want their bottle. They're mad. Well, we grow up and we're off the bottle, but we still have our binkies. And our binkies are our chosen area of emotional response to not getting our way. And we have to go to the very bottom of that, identify what the issue is and what we're still clinging to, and open that thing honestly before Jesus. The victory over sin is won in the prayer closet when we are honest before him about who we are and what the motivations of our soul are. And we undergo such difficulties, such painful experiences, because we refuse to deal to the bottom of our sin. Reoccurring sin simply means that I refuse in the prayer closet to be honest with God about who I am. Today, the topic was supposed to be and will be in part on prayer. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God, the complete opening of the heart to God. It's sharing with the Lord God of heaven the hidden secrets of our heart. It's being transparent in the heavenly realm. Prayer is not saying pretty words to God. Prayer is the honest expression of our lostness before the throne of God, enabling a change to be made in our very heart and character so that God can begin to move into our being and heal the wounds that Satan has inflicted in our spirits. Verse 5 of chapter 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the condition of the heart after having recognized our total inability where all pride is crushed. And then as the pride is crushed and there is a weeping and a mourning over the wickedness of our hearts, when we identify fully the depths of who we are, the next step is meekness. The pride is gone. Have you ever endured great anguish and pain and and you have wept uncontrollably and finally when the weeping is past, there is a peace that comes over your soul. It's as though the tears cleansed you and washed away something and you can take a deep breath and you can let go. You can relax. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The great fathers of the faith, even those more recent like Charles Finney and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, Whitfield, they all spoke about the same thing. They spoke about the peace of God that would begin to enter into the soul of a person who had communed with God honestly, repented of their sin, dealt to the bottom of what their sin was about, a great peace. And Finney, talking about this, said, 
I was so peaceful that I thought the Holy Spirit had left me because the Holy Spirit was always troubling his soul. But after he confessed his sin to the very depths, such peace came into his soul because now the Holy Spirit was no longer troubling him. The Holy Spirit was encouraging him and comforting him, and he didn't know how to handle it. He'd fought against the Holy Spirit all of his life. And suddenly to have this peace rush into his soul was something totally unexpected. No one had ever said this to him before. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Literally, blessed are those who are starving to death and pinched in their spirit for righteousness. Okay, now their mouths are open and they're ready to receive and God's ready to pour into them all of his righteousness. He now will make them righteous. I believe I've done a disservice in being too casual and not doing the deep work with all of you regarding this poorness in spirit and this mourning that must take place. Everybody wants to make church a happy place. Happy songs, clapping, every, everything's got to be happy at church. People don't come to be discouraged. They don't come to cry. They come to be happy. So let's be happy. And this famous preacher, the smiling preacher, oh, all he does is smile. It makes me sick. I want to vomit when I see him because he's so false and so wicked. Let me tell you, there is no joy like the joy of a man or woman who has finally confessed their sin and be and been released from their sin. There's no joy that can be contained. It is explosive. It is dancing. It is shouting. It is excitement. After the release comes and the blood has done its work, but most of us have tried to enter into the gospel of Jesus without adequate work of weeping and mourning over our sin, and we have been brought into the happy church. And I have to tell you, Catherine and David, speaking here as often as they do, have not helped us be happy, talking about the the piercing and talking about staying under and talk. I mean, come on. They're right. This is what Jesus was saying. The National Prayer Chapel will stay very small. God will not be able to use us until we mourn and get to the very bottom of our sin. And David in his offertories has only been one more voice, like a prophet's voice, pointing the way. This is the way of righteousness. Give up your life. Let the piercing of God accomplish its purpose in your life. We want to go out and be wonderful, successful Americans. And God cannot use wonderful, successful American Christians. God can't use them and will not use them in this church. All illusions have to be laid aside. We have to go to the bottom of our sin and let the blood of Jesus into the very center of our being so that he can heal us and release us. And then this place will become so explosive, you will not be able to come in here and sit still. This place will become alive. Right now, we're largely like a morgue. We're dead. 
I hate to say this to you, but we are. We're dead. We've got to go to the bottom and get at these sins that keep being repeated in our lives. We've got to deal with these. And I know all of our fancy theology is not going to cut it. Some of you are in relationships with people who, when you leave here, they immediately begin to shift you another direction away from the heart of Jesus. You immediately dive into internet or television or novels or something else that will steer your heart away from Jesus. So you come here and you hear a little bit, and then you can run to your comfortable hidey cave and say, Pastors, he's out of it. He's crazy. I can only take so much. One man wrote to me. I should have brought it for you. He wrote to me this last week. He said, Pastor, listening to you on the radio is the hardest thing I do every day. But I still have to listen. But you make me miserable. I can't stand it. When are you going to teach something else? And my answer to him is, when you get it. When you get it. When you go to the bottom and you let Jesus begin to do the full work of gospel restoration in your soul, then you won't find the word hard to listen to anymore. Then it will be comforting to your soul. And you'll say, yes, Jesus, yes, come, finish this work in my heart. I want to go home with you. I don't want anybody but you, Jesus. You're enough for me, Jesus. Now, I want to say just a word to you about prayer. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is, again, following along exactly with what I've already said to you about the spiritual walk. The Lord does not want an external practice of Christianity that covers up our sin. He wants us to go to the bottom and gain the victory and not turn aside to the world anymore. He wants to take us all the way into his heart. So he's saying, go into your room, close the door, and pray. And there was a time in my walk with Jesus where I could not sense his presence any longer with me, when I could no longer sense any guidance from the Holy Spirit. I was pastoring a large, successful congregation, but it was a flesh congregation. And the hunger of my soul finally drove me to set aside one hour a day to pray and confront God to see if he was really a person, if he existed. Because I'd come to the point in my life where I saw no evidence of God anywhere. And I said, I don't know if you even exist. Are you just a figment of my imagination? And so I set apart an hour to pursue God. And I went at him. And I railed at him in very unkind terms demanding from him a sign that he was real. 
and I would run out of things to say after ten minutes, I'd say them all over again. And then what am I going to do with the rest of the time? I made a covenant with myself that I would stay there for one hour. And what I began to discover is that real prayer doesn't begin until after an hour. And so I had to begin two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, six hours on my face before God. And my prayers began to change because God began to deal with my wicked heart. He taught me to read the psalm out loud to him. I learned to pray by reading the psalms aloud to the Lord. I'd read some of the psalms and I'd say, Lord, I don't feel that in my heart. Am I supposed to feel like that in my heart? And God began to strip away the varnish and the pain on my life. And he began to deal with me to the very depths. After a year and a half of that kind of prayer, God finally spoke audibly. I won't tell the whole story, but out of that came my wife, Jan, and a whole pilgrimage and journey of closing that church, of going off salary, of losing houses and cars and savings and being stripped of everything and end up finally being homeless. Five years without a home. Staying in a little tiny bedroom with pagans. Maybe a 1,200 square foot house. Our bedroom jammed up right next to their bedroom. So at night, they didn't want us to hear them in the bedroom, so they'd crank the stereo up as loud as they could. And that throbbing rock music would shatter the still of the evening until one thirty or 2 in the morning when I would finally get up and go down and turn the music off. The Lord was dealing with me, dealing with Jan. And God miraculously opened finances, cars, finally opening the National Prayer Chapel, sending us to radio, providing everything we could possibly need. And then Jan got sick. And again, I went to the prayer closet and lay before God, intervening for my wife's healing as she died day after day, her body wasting away, every Sunday bringing her to the church in my arms, and then later as she began to have fluid build up, Brother David carried her. He was stronger than I was. And then a wheelchair, and every Sunday she'd be on the front pew in a bed that I'd make for her there. And then the Lord took her. I said, Lord, how can I pray? How can I pray? You didn't answer my prayer. Up to that point, God had answered every prayer that I'd prayed. Very quickly. Almost immediately. And the great agony of my heart was, where are you, God? Why would you let Jan die? How can I walk without her? 
Am I released from pastoral ministry? Shall we close the National Prayer Chapel? Is it over? What do I do? I've been in that incredible struggle for three years. Crying out to God. Walking alone. And then he put me back on radio. Ten years ago when we started, we paid $150 for a half hour of radio time. Now the Lord put us on for one hour for $150. When it's supposed to be $500, I began to see things the Lord was doing. He was providing. He was answering my prayers. But still the cry of my heart, Lord, why did Jan have to die? And she would often pray, and many of you heard her, Lord, I'm a blank check. Spend me however you want to spend me for your kingdom. And which of us imagined that the Lord would spend her on cancer? But she did not die with a whimper. She died with a shout of triumph. The victory was hers. She knew where she was going. She was eager to get there. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. For a long time, I thought that our Father meant that we were all together as a family, and so we could pray our Father. I do. I still think that's true. But this week, the Lord gave me a new understanding. There's only one reason we can call God our Father. And that's because Jesus Christ is our brother. And so when I say our Father, I'm saying Jesus and my Father. I'm saying our Father. Because I cannot get to God without Jesus. The only way I can get to Jesus is through a family relationship our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That word hallowed in the Greek is hagiadzo. It means to make holy. It is a verb. In other words, it is my task as I begin to pray to make the name of God holy before me. There's an action required on my part. And here's where we find out whether I've made God's name holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The word kingdom again means royal authority. It is not a geographic location. So I am praying, bring your royal authority. I am making a choice. It is a verb. I'm going to make your name holy because I am going to ask you for your royal authority to be exercised over my life. I want no one else's authority over my life. I want your authority alone, Jesus. And then he says, your will be done. Literally, 
Jesus is teaching us that if we're going to come to his Father and our Father, the only way we can come is if we say to him first, I'm going to make your name holy by submitting to your royal authority. And the way I'm going to submit to your royal authority is I'm going to pray only that your will is done. Not my will. So when I prayed for Jan, I prayed for God's will to be done. But I expected my will to be done. Because so many times when I have prayed, my will and God's will have been together. And what I finally began to understand is that the Lord's will was to take Jan home. And I could not fast 30 days and spend those days on my face before God praying and force God to do my will. That I cannot by fasting force God to do what I want him to do because God's interests are not the same as my interests. And the very heart of repeated sin is demanding that I have my will and not God's will. I want this relationship. And God, I want you to give me this relationship and I want you to make this work. And if you don't, I'm not going to believe in you. That's praying against the will of God, and it's refusing to do what this verb says I must do, hagiadzod, I will not make God's name holy. This is an individual task that we must do. We must make God's name holy in our life by submitting to his will. We cannot come as his children and not declare, I want your royal authority exercised over my life. And I have been praying in agreement with God, and I've been asking God to exercise his royal authority over your lives. And I've been naming most of you by name. Daily. I am asking God, that he will exercise his royal authority over you and bring you to a complete end of yourself so that you can be saved. It's this exercising of this authority of God, this royal authority of God, that finally brings us into this place of humility where we will totally confess and break the power of of sin in our lives by the blood of Jesus. And always the argument is, if I do what you say, Pastor, and this was said to me this past week on the air, when James said to me, Pastor, if I do what you're talking about, I'm going to die. You're getting it. You're right. That's what's required. It's called a new birth. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 3 when he said, you must be born again. 
And Nicodemus didn't like the sound of that. And so he said, oh, come on, Jesus. How can I enter back into my mother's womb? I'm, I'm old. And Jesus said, you're a leader in Israel. You don't understand this? Yes, he understood it very well. He just didn't want to do it. Give us today our daily bread. Our provision comes from the hand of God. The healing of our soul comes from the hand of God. The release from the prisons comes from the hand of God. And all of these things happening in our lives are very specifically meant for us to begin to pray in agreement with God, asking for his royal authority and submitting to whatever he chooses for us and not rebelling, but going back to the Beatitudes, being meek, being humble, not rising up against him. submitting to him. So, let me ask you the question. Do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? That's really the bottom line question. Where do you want to go with your life? Do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? All men are consigned to go to hell. We don't have to do anything, and we'll end up in hell. Nobody's going to end up in heaven by chance. Any person who's going to go to heaven will end up there because they chose to make God's name holy. And they've asked him to exercise his divine authority over their lives and they have submitted to that. So what do you want? Where are you going? You can escape into laughter and humor, bitterness, anger. You can escape into work. You can escape into fanciful thinking, dreams, You can escape into relationships. You can escape into all kinds of things, but they're all just hidey caves. And they'll take you to hell. There's only one thing that will save your soul. And that's making God's name holy in your life. We have work. And that work is to get to the very bottom of the issues that confront us and to not postpone that work. Will you do the work? Have you done the work? And do you have the victory? Almighty God, I ask again in the presence of my brothers and sisters that you would cause your name to be holy and exercise your divine authority over us, over the National Prayer Chapel, Lord.
exercise your divine authority over us. That your name would be great among us. Lord, I thank you. I worship you. I ask now for the daily bread for each of us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.